Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I think that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics and so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture. Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the show. Today feels like one of those days after spending four hours this morning talking about the market reaction to a very big story in the financial markets where when I looked outside the window, I was sort of expecting like horror film-esque scenes of people <laughs> screaming through the, the streets of the city. Um, but the the Netflix dramatised version of what's been happening uh, in the financial markets not, in fact, bothering most people, I think, no. in the world. And it's really just all in my head, which is... Yet another turn of this story. <laughs> People are just out buying coffee, sitting around, having chats. Living their lives. Like, like the world's going on. It's strange. Okay, in a nutshell, the big banking story that we're talking about is UBS taking over Credit Suisse. Uh, billions in central bank and government support. That's after we saw this huge uh, drop in Credit Suisse's shares last week. This is potentially the closest we've been to a crisis since 2008. There's been lots of stories around, lots of kind of issues around Credit Suisse for a while. It's Switzerland's second largest lender. It's been having years of corporate scandals, infighting, misplaced investments. And then that all led to a sudden loss of confidence in the bank. Massive outflows, people pulling all their money out of the bank. But it is one of what's known as a globally systemically important bank, a GSIB, which is a handy handy term for you to bandy about in your conversations with friends at the weekend. Um, what I don't suggest you doing is looking up the definition of it, which is what I just did. Uh, and they, the list of five categories that you have to c- compile to make a GSIB involves such catchy terms as cross-jurisdictional activity and interconnectedness. Oh, Stephen, you're sending me asleep. I was going to say, let's not get into that, but it sounds like we already have. Now, we've all been glued to this story for the last few days. It raises so many questions about bank bailouts whether any other banks could fail in this way and what might be next given a year of rising interest rates uh, around the world. Remember that the global financial crisis was uh, arguably the point at which Britain's stagnating living standards actually began. The, the Revolution the Re- Revolution Foundation have a report out Resolution, today. Resolution, I think. Resolution. The, the Revolution Foundation would be quite a big change. That could be it. yours, <laughs> your think tank, Ewan. <laughs> well, they have a report out showing that Britain's wages uh, at a standstill have led to the average worker being £11,000 poorer over the last 15 years. So this does all have uh, wider financial implications. Yeah, if they're not talking about it in Westminster yet, I'm pretty sure they will be later in the week. We've got a Bank of England decision on Thursday. We're expecting the bank to raise rates by 25 basis points to 4.25%, but this really muddies the waters. And tomorrow, you've got MPs on the Treasury Select Committee quizzing the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, about the budget. I wonder whether the issue of bank stability is going to come up because I was speaking to Pat McFadden, the Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury from 
Labour before the budget. And the way he put it is he's worried that there are other unexploded bombs after uh, Silicon Valley Bank's collapse. And then over the weekend, of course, now we've had Credit Suisse. And let's not forget, of course, there are some 10,000 people working for Credit Suisse and UBS in London as well. So there's lots of people who are worried about their jobs this morning after the deal over the weekend. Uh, Lord Turner in the Times, uh, former head of the UK financial regulator, uh, saying that he's confident we won't see a rerun uh, of the banking crisis. But, and Stephen, we were talking to people about this all morning on Bloomberg Radio about the unknown unknowns in the banking sector, especially around Credit Suisse. Does it mean for the Edinburgh reforms that they're going in the wrong direction, that actually what they need is more regulation rather than deregulation? Yeah, and the key question, of course, for the Bank of England and for central banks around the world is uh, how far do they prioritise financial stability and, you know, the stability of the financial system as opposed to their their fight against inflation? And I think we're yet to sort of see quite where that balance works out. And we've got a key decision, obviously, uh, coming uh, later this week. Okay, well, that's a story that the financial markets really care about. But let's turn to one that they don't really care about. But certainly people in the world of politics do. Uh, This is Rishi Sunak keeping a close eye on his predecessor this week. Boris Johnson's televised appearance in front of the Privileges Committee on Wednesday is sure to grab plenty of attention and risks derailing the Prime Minister's agenda. Well, the dossier drawn up by lawyers setting out his side of the Partygate story is expected to be made public later today. But what were the forces that made Boris Johnson's electoral message so irresistible at the last election? Well, joining us now is Matthew Goodwin, Professor of Politics at the University of Kent. Matthew's new book, Values, Voice and Virtue, The New British Politics, is out uh, later this month. Now, Matthew, looking back at uh, the 2019 election, people were sick of the EU debate. They wanted to get Brexit done, to uh, to borrow a phrase. And Labour had a very unpopular leader. But, but you argue that there were wider forces at work, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And it's great to be with you. Basically, what I'm trying to do in the book is to say, look, we've had 10 years of unprecedented political volatility in the UK. I spent a lot of my time talking to firms in the city about it. And what I'm arguing in this book is... You know, essentially, that that is not just about the referendum. It's not just about social media. We've had a real undercurrent of division in this country building really for the last 40 years, which what I'm arguing centers on the way in which the people who are now dominating politics, who are dominating many other institutions in society, no longer really reflect the values of a large chunk of the country. And uh, we're not out of the woods by any means. I think we're in a sort of brief pause. But there are lots of voters out there who simply look at these institutions and no longer feel that they're represented or even respected. Well, do you think with his sleeves rolled up, Keir Starmer, quote unquote, gets it? (laughs) I was running focus groups in the Red Wall two weeks ago, and I can tell you of the 12 people around the table, uh, three of them had never heard of Keir Starmer. Right. So sometimes we overestimate how much we're watching politics when other people are, are, are not necessarily following it as closely as we are. Look, on, on current projections, again, I talk a lot about this in the city. Labour needs to be 12 and a half points ahead to win a majority. As of this morning, they're averaging a 17-point lead. The collapse of the SNP in Scotland makes things easier for Starmer and Labour. Uh, but, but they've still got some big problems. We've got about a third of the electorate currently undecided about who they're going to vote for. Rishi Sunak's beginning to make 
some headway. And he's hoping, in fact, I know he's hoping, some of his people have told me this, that by the end of the year, inflation is down, interest rates are down, and he's able to try and convince the country that we're over the worst and uh, not to take a punt on Keir Starmer. But this has nonetheless been a remarkable turnaround for Labour, something which in the book, I argue, reflects the beginning of a new revolution in British politics. Lots of young people, uh, lots of middle class professionals, lots of minority voters turning to Labour in numbers we've never seen before in British politics. And did Rishi tell you as well that when inflation's down, that's the moment he's going to do the tax cuts? <laughs> Listen, here's, if I, I, were I a betting man? I am a betting man. I put my cards on the table. Here's what's going to happen. I think as we go into early 24, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt are going to deploy the 2015 narrative, right, which is we're over the worst. We're coming around the corner. Don't let Labour ruin it. What I suspect Keir Starmer will say in reply is what I call the Ronald Reagan question. Remember, 1980, one of the greatest campaign lines of all time, Reagan stared down the camera, looked at voters and said, are you better off than you were four years ago? A simple question to the point, uh, demolished Jimmy Carter, began the 1980s realignment. That's what Starmer's going to say. And he's also going to be talking a bit more about crime, about accepting Brexit to try and hold down that red wall and stop it from staying with the Conservatives. So the next election, 24, in the UK and the US, is going to be a vintage year for political nerds. You heard it here first. <laughs> oh, exciting. But yeah, political nerds rejoice. Um what does that, that greater involvement of more young people, for example, mean in, term of, in terms of policy priorities, though? Are we going to see, you know, politicians like Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak embarrassing themselves trying to get down with the kids on TikTok? Well, perhaps not on TikTok, but, you know, on social media. <laughs> well, if you look, I teach first years at university. OK, so this is Gen Z. They were born in 2004. Uh, so that's that's the context that I that I work in every day. Now, if you take university educated Zoomers from Gen Z, 85% of that group are currently planning to vote for the Labour Party. We've never had a figure that high. Now, of course, you might look at that and think, well, you know, it's game over for the Conservatives, not Conservatives. Uh, not so. There is still a very large turnout gap among different generations. So baby boomers, their grandparents, a much bigger generation, by the way, they're 30 points more likely to vote than Gen Z. So Labour's going to have to do more than win over the students and the graduates who tend to live in the same kinds of areas of the country. They are also going to have to make headway in non-London England, where remember, Labour has not won the popular vote in non-London England since 2001, right? So my, my message in the book is basically whoever gets in touch with the values of the electorate, Whoever, gets, whoever gives, gives voters a greater sense that they have a voice in the national conversation, they're looking at media, they're looking at creative industries, politics, cultural institutions, and they're, to be honest, not sharing the values that, are, that, that, that a large chunk of the elite share. And whoever pushes back against this divisive identity politics and focuses on what we have in common is going to do very well at the next election. And I think you can see Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak both trying to do that in their own way. So it's going to be a fascinating year, I think, for Britain. Where do the people who are disenfranchised with the, with the the global elite, if you like it, go now? They broadly follow the path from UKIP and the Brexit Party to Boris Johnson's Tories. Are they going to vote for Rishi Sunak? So this is this is the million dollar question. If you look at Boris Johnson's twenty nineteen voters, only about half of them are currently planning to vote Conservative. About a third are saying they're not going to vote at all. And then about one in 10 are saying they're going to vote Labour and a smaller number saying 
they're going to vote for the Reform Party, a kind of you know successor to the Brexit Party. If Sunak wins back the vast majority of those 2019ers, which is where the small boats come into play, uh, immigration comes into play, it's a second top issue for those voters. That's why Suella Braverman and Lee Anderson are very important for Rishi Sunak. If he wins them back, then we are looking at hung parliament, possible conservative majority. Uh, to do that, Sunak's going to have to be three points ahead in the polls. That that keeps the Conservatives in majority territory. Now, you might say that's incredibly unlikely when you look at the polling at the moment. The one thing I would remind everybody listening about is that we have in this country record levels of volatility. We've got record levels of voters saying they're going to switch from one party to another. And over the last 10 years, 60% of, 60 of them have done that. So when people say, you know, there's no way the Conservatives can come back, I would I would caution against that. I would say the kinds of twists and turns that we've seen over the last 18 months during Partygate, during the trust premiership, that disastrous experiment, that 45 day experiment, uh, you know, never say never. I think the next campaign is going to be very, very um, unpredictable and turbulent. Matthew, I, I can't let you away without asking about you slipped it casually into a, a sentence there earlier about a collapse of the SNP you're forecasting. Why do you think that there is going to be a collapse in support for the SNP? Well, not necessarily a complete collapse in electoral support, but there is clearly a collapse within the SNP. There is division within the SNP's ranks. And the worse the SNP do, the better the Labour Party will do north of the border. And the blunt reality is if the Labour Party wins a handful of seats in Scotland and begins to stage a serious recovery, remember up until 2015, Labour were dominant in Scotland, right, which isn't that long ago. If Labour begin to regain territory at the expense of the SNP, their life in the Red Wall, their life in Northern England, their life in non-London England becomes a hell of a lot easier because they need to win back less seats in some of those more socially conservative pro-Brexit areas. So this is this is why Labour are now beginning to realise that the campaign strategy for 2024 is is much broader and wider than they were assuming three or four years ago in the aftermath of 2019. So they'll be hoping they can exploit the SNP's divisions and they can also continue to squeeze the Lib Dems and the Greens. And if they do all that, then actually Starmer's going to end up with a majority in his own right. Matthew, you mentioned uh, the uh, liberal elites, for want of a better phrase, uh, dominating many parts of uh, of the country. Uh, one of the one of the places that dominates most is is academia. What, what's it like for you working with, within that within that sector? <laughs> I think you had just said um, that you're part of the tofu eating wokarate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, um, I consider myself to be, you know, fairly average in how I see the world. I'm like many voters out there. I'm probably on a personal level. I'm, I'm a, I, I want to reform the economy in a number of ways, and and I probably think that, you know, overall, I'm, I'm, I'm moderate conservative when it comes to, you know, culture, identity, and history, and that's basically where where your average voter is. Now, in the institutions, in the universities, of course, it's very different. About 80% of academics lean very strongly to the left. And one of the things I've been campaigning on ever since I've seen my friends be be really harassed and discriminated against, people like Kathleen Stock at Sussex, people like Jordan Peterson at Cambridge, uh, I, I've given evidence to the government's higher education freedom of speech bill because I think we've now, sadly, come to a point where actually we are going to need to step in to ensure that students are, are exposed to a wide range of ideas when they go to university and that political minorities 
whether they're gender critical feminists, whether they're conservative historians, whatever, those who challenge the dominant orthodoxy do not lose their jobs and are not sacked and are not harassed because they hold different beliefs to everybody else. I think that's a reasonable place to be. Um, it's a reasonable position. And that's partly what I talk about in this book, which is a sort of, you know, the loss of voice for a large number of people out there in society who, and just, just you know, here's the basic problem we have. The institutions are dominated by elite graduates from elite institutions. And so as they've moved left on cultural questions, they've taken the institutions with them. And, and I'm worried about that. I think we need to work much harder ensuring the institutions represent and reflect the, the wider range of views in society. And if we do that, we'll be in a much better place. All right, Matthew Goodwin, Professor of Politics at the University of Kent. Thanks for being with us. And you can get Matthew's new book, Values, Voice and Virtue, later this month. Now, on Wednesday of this week, MPs will get the chance to vote on elements of the Windsor framework, that EU-UK deal on trade rules for Northern Ireland. This, as the region's Democratic Unionist Party is continuing to deliberate on its official response to the agreement, with some prominent party members already coming out against it. Well, our Dublin Bureau Chief Morwenna Conium joins us now for more. Morwenna, we had reports over the weekend that the DUP would vote against the Windsor framework this week. What do we know about where the party stands on the agreement at this stage? Yes, so we have um, had reports over the weekend, as you said, that the DUP will vote against it. That is from a source that was reported in the um, Sunday Telegraph, in fact. And today we're seeing that um, Ian Paisley saying that he would be voting against it. And he says that his colleagues will join him. Um, it is important to remember that, you know, he doesn't speak for the whole party, that, you know, Jeffrey Donaldson, the leader, hasn't said this himself. So we are still waiting to see. But a recent survey did show that over 70 percent of DUP supporters, um, you know, disapproved of the Windsor framework. So it, it doesn't seem that it's being received very positively, but we won't really know until soft, um, until Wednesday. Moena, what's what's the the DUP's beef with the agreement? So they say that it doesn't address some of the fundamental concerns that it had with the protocol in the first place. Um, that's particularly the trading relationship with the UK. Um, they do want more clarity on quite a few points. So things like the green lanes um, and red lines, lanes, which uh, distinguish between goods which are destined for Northern Ireland versus the EU. Um, they want more clarity on that. They've got some of that lawyers who are looking at the policies proposed. Um, they're also concerned about the so-called Stormont break, um, which effectively allows uh, lawmakers in Northern Ireland to have a say on whether new EU laws are applied to Northern Ireland. But that is something that they want to understand more how exactly it works and they still have concerns about the fact that existing EU laws would be um, continued to be imposed on Northern Ireland and the fact that the EU is really having a say in Northern Ireland. Well, when I spoke to the uh, UK Foreign Secretary James Cleverly last week, he said that he hoped the DUP can give the deal its full-throated support, but I was at a bit of a loss as to what the government's strategy is to get the DUP on side now that they've already seemingly targeted the Windsor framework to the DUP. What options does Rishi Sunak have if they oppose the deal? Well, if the DUP oppose the deal, um, what Rishi Sunak has to do is try and get it through a vote in the House of Commons. And he could rely on opposition party support. But that, of course, could be politically 
um damaging to him um but that is that is an option um it's not you know categorical that he needs the dup support but it will make life a lot easier if he is seen to have been able to get them on side and there's also of course the um harder line brexiteers in his own conservative party who need to be persuaded as well of course, Moreni, we're, we're looking at this at a time that Joe Biden is expected to visit Northern Ireland to talk, to to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Belfast power sharing agreement. What you know? What are the consequences if the DUP doesn't sign up to this? Well, I think it has been hoped that um, the DUP will have rejoined the Stormont Assembly by the time um, of the proposed visit. Um, that would certainly be, make it a lot easier for parties on all sides to celebrate the legacy of the, the Good Friday Agreement, um, which is, of course, what established the power sharing institutions for Northern Ireland's devolved government in the first place. Um, they haven't been fully functioning for over a year now, and that is because the DUP um, refused to effectively nominate their person for one of the top positions due to um, their opposition to the Northern Irish Protocol. Um, so it's not it's not seen as being a particularly great advert for how successful the Good Friday Agreement has been in terms of the institutions it set up, um, if it isn't currently sitting. But um, there hasn't been a direct suggestion. I don't think that Biden wouldn't visit if it's not resolved. And of course, even if now, even if the DUP accepts the winds of framework there's you know we're looking at next month now so there's no guarantee at all that things will be resolved politically by the time of the good friday agreement even if they do decide to support the winds of framework so we may well yet see you in belfast then morena thanks for joining us that's our (laughs) dublin bureau chief morena conium Now, in the coming weeks, the government is set to announce a raft of environmental policies. The measures, apparently internally dubbed as Green Day, come in response to President Biden's massive package of subsidies for green technologies. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lara Williams has been writing on this and she joins us now on the show. Lara, thanks for joining us. You point out in your piece that you wrote about this, that this is focused very much on carbon capture, usage and storage. But there's Another element of this puzzle that you think that we should be focused on uh, for the UK government. Tell us a bit more about that. Yes. So um, a consensus is forming that we're going to need carbon dioxide removal in order to reach net zero. So in the UK, by 2050, 19% of our emissions abatement is going to come from a combination of carbon capture, which is what the UK is funding with this £20 billion, um, and carbon removal. But they are different. So think of carbon capture as neutral emissions. So in this instance, it's only referring to capturing carbon dioxide at the source. So like in a power plant or factory, and then you'll store it underground. Um, Now, it will be very useful as an emissions reduction method for uh, hard to abate sectors like heavy industry. Um, And, uh, you know, in a net zero electricity grid, we'll probably have to use natural gas with carbon capture and storage. Um, But I think it's important to remember we can't obviously use it as an excuse to slow down the transition away from fossil fuels. Um, 
And then, but it's, it is different to carbon removal. And so carbon dioxide removal is about drawing down historical emissions, either with things like, you know, nature-based technologies like reforestation or new technologies like direct air capture. Um, and this will really be a tool for the future to sort of, you know, we've already put up a lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and uh, carbon dioxide removal will sort of give us a chance to sweep up the damage that we've done um but a lot of the approaches are still in the early development stages and they need a lot more investment and so it is a little bit disappointing that the government isn't looking ahead you know it's it's got a target to deploy uh what they they refer to as greenhouse gas removals uh technologies um but none of this money is is for that and that's disappointing so so tw- 20 billion going into carbon capture, how much does carbon re- removal need to be able to accelerate that sort of investment that you're talking about? We, but is it a comparable the... industry in, in development, I wonder? Is it the sort of thing that, you know, is is perhaps not as far along in development and, and might need more seed funding at this stage? Yes, it definitely needs it needs more regulatory support and it needs a lot more investment. And so in the UK, we have, you know, a really good like science and research output uh we're like you know one of the we're definitely in like the top five in the world for that you know we punch above our weight what we're really bad at is taking it from research to commercialization so you know you look at like environmental like patents related to environmental technologies and we're we're pretty low um and so more funding to help fill that gap and get the research done into carbon removal technology through and make it commercial and help build that industry. I think that's really important and we are in a good position. We could be competitive on that with people like the US. Um, but right now that it's we're lacking in the sort of funding and regulatory support. Now the green subsidies are becoming enormously uh, competitive. The US is pumping loads of money into this. Is carbon capture something which we have a natural advantage with? Is it a sensible thing that we can compete on? Um, yes, we, you know what, we're geologically blessed with um, large caverns, which we have, you know, emptied of oil and gas uh, that we can store carbon dioxide in. Um, and so we have a really good advantage here. And I think it is sensible to put money into it. And, you know, there's even the option in the future to sell our carbon dioxide storage space to other countries in Europe who will also need to store carbon dioxide. So it is a sensible investment. I think lots of people are really happy because there's been years of lobbying to get this sort of funding uh, in place for carbon capture and storage. Um, But I would just like the government to be a bit to look a bit further ahead um, towards the tools of the future. Okay, Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lara Williams, thank you so much for joining us on what is an absolutely fascinating subject that we're sure to come back to again in the future. Well, that is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and Marifal Hussain was our audio engineer. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. 
What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.